You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson, I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its EV-focused sister site, The Driven, and One Step Off The Grid. And joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well. I trust uh, all our listeners are well, despite the storms in Victoria, which we're going to come to shortly. And as usual, we have uh, a great and distinguished guest uh, for the podcast this week, don't we? We do, actually. We've got um, Steve Swift, who's the um, one of the heads of the wind business from GE uh, Venova, which... Um, just recently signed a one point no two point eight gigawatt um, contract for wind energy um, with Andrew Forest Squadron Energy, and so we talked to Steve about those plans in Australia and about the wind energy industry in general. But look, wind has been in the news this past week, and I thought we might actually start there, um, David. Um, before we get on to wind energy um, in terms of the electricity grid, um, maybe a different form of wind energy in terms of its impact on the electricity grid in Victoria. Um, huge storms, transmission towers falling down, um, the normal accusations from the conservative media and the barking mad sky after dark, uh, talking about that uh, this wouldn't have happened or only happens because of renewables. But to those thinking seriously about this, still a lesson to be learnt or listen, a lesson to be observed at least about the increasing power of storms and its impact on transmission towers, of which we plan to build quite a lot. Yes, uh, I think that's the question that really comes out of this, is the future of the transmission build, and we maybe should talk about that, but let's talk about what I learnt uh, in reading uh, on various places. Uh, Particularly, I was a very insightful comment from Dan Lee at What Clarity, who keeps uh, what um, Global Rome, uh, which what Clarity is, keeps very detailed records of just about everything to do with electricity. Uh, and Dan Lee observed that the, the number of uh, transmission outages has definitely increased over the past decade. Now, you, you know, as soon as something is announced, some fact, everyone rushes to explain it. <laughs> <laughs> and there can be a lot of explanations like age and so on, but it turns out that the uh, frequency of storms is likely to be an explaining thing and particularly the sort of storms that we get there's a thing apparently not a tornado but something called a straight line wind speed associated with these storms and there's published uh, scientific uh, journal articles in the United States to show that straight line wind speeds around the world have or particularly in the USA have increased in the Midwest there was one Uh, incident that caused US $11 billion worth of damage a year or two ago. Uh, And we, of course, have seen the things in South Australia and in Victoria. And as I said, there's a general increase. And that you can also clearly relate that it's expected under climate change that you will get an increase in straight line wind speeds, just as you can expect that the the atmosphere can hold more moisture. So what we're seeing is these... um, climate change impacts gradually starting to play out. I I think myself this is quite a compelling uh, story but the message is what you know the transmission that we have today was mostly built a very long time ago. It's not that it's got old but it faces a harsher environment than it used to face and we are going to build more transmission going forward and therefore the question is you know what standards should be applied. Well, I don't know what the answer to that question is because I don't actually know how far the technology of steel towers has actually progressed um, since um, the ones that got blown down, for instance, um, just west of Melbourne last week and whether the new towers were just recently built in Project Energy Connect, which links South Australia and New South Wales and the towers that is all planned for VNI West and Hume Link and all those sort of things. Um, is this, um, you know, if we're going to have stronger winds, do, do we put them underground? Well, that... That is the question, but then you have to wait a long time uh, and, and it costs vastly more and we won't do it. 
the other answer uh, is to build your energy closer to where it's been consumed. For instance, there would have been a lot less blackouts if there were more household batteries in Victoria or with the more grid forming batteries at, uh, you know, substations, uh, for instance. So, the, uh, but I mean, there was a lot of damage and I myself have been in a, a micro storm that wiped out half of Linfield's uh, um, uh, electricity distribution for, for 100 hours in my case. So these things do happen. Uh, I'm not sure what the answers are, Giles, and perhaps we, uh, since we don't know, we won't talk about it too much. No, but but I think... Yeah, but look, I'll just make a couple of other observations. One is just to sort of clarify that there was um, electricity losses as a result of the transmission towers falling down, uh, which is one issue. 1,000 megawatts of load was uh, sort of disconnected or sort of um, um, shrugged off. Um, Wind farm, the Dundonald Wind Farm, which was operating about 275 megawatts at the time, did apparently, according to our email, what it was supposed to do and um, uh, went off because um, its transmission transmission line wasn't there anymore. Um, Stockyard Hill had gone off about an hour and a half earlier, apparently due to grass fires in the area. The big mystery is about the Loyang A um, generators and maybe some other generators. And so there's some um, investigations going into there, but also the local network issues. And that's where the bulk of the people who lost power, so more than half a million was because of local network issues. Um, the, um, you know, just sort of trees falling on power lines, power lines being blown down. I mean, I know some people in Melbourne, they just, you know, some parts of Melbourne weren't affected at all and other people were just going, well, crikey, haven't seen anything like it in their life. So um, really quite interesting. But um, yes, um, David, let's move on to some other wind energy stories. Um, there's been an awful lot happening actually in with, with um with wind farm projects. I mean, we've sort of been complaining um, in recent episodes, in recent months, that uh, we've got an awful lot of solar and um, not much wind. But Rio Tinto um, this week has signed what is the biggest, and I think the longest in terms of duration, um, wind energy offtake agreement. This is for a new one point, um, oh, help me here, is it 1.4 gigawatts? Um, yes, I think it's a, I think it's 1.4 gigawatts, uh, and you know, there's uh, Queensland's uh, look. The why everyone's excited about that is it's a big corporate Rio signing a 25-year power purchase agreement. Uh, you know, uh, that's that's a big commitment. And uh, well, 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 it's the, well, it's the biggest energy consumer in Queensland. And guess what? They didn't go for nuclear. <laughs> No. And you know what? They found somewhere to put this wind farm, despite the fact that that complete idiot, David uh, Littleproud, stood up in Parliament and put his hand on his heart and said, there's no more room in Australia for wind or solar farms. <laughs> I mean, uh, have you ever heard a more ludicrous uh, uh, suggestion? I suppose you have. Well, but, yes, from uh, Barnaby Joyce and, um, and from the opposition energy spokesman and many of the other people in the LNP. But apart from that, no. <laughs> and, you know, it's so disappointing, really, when you looking, uh, if you're AEMO or all of the developers and you're facing um, an opposition that simply denies the direction that the industry is actually rapidly travelling down. I mean, we are already at something like 40% uh, renewable energy counting the hydro. It's clearly going to be a lot higher than that in a couple of years. What the industry would drastically like is a bit of bipartisan support for the whole policy so that these investment decisions can be made with more confidence. Nevertheless, and I, I, I mean, I seriously really think that the fact that anyone can take uh, seriously what people like Barnaby Joyce or David Littleproud who makes de demonstrably false, outright false statements uh, is just impossible, I think. And, and you know... Uh, then it's backed up with this talk of nuclear, which is just ridiculous. How could Australia possibly commit to small nuclear reactors when the technology doesn't exist? I don't want to waste any more time on it, but it is a ridiculous suggestion if you're Rio to suggest that you should uh, wait around for someone to build something that almost certainly won't ever happen, ever. Yeah, and, and I guess the point, the point with Rio is that we're talking about big smelters here, we're talking about big refineries, we're talking about major energy, cons energy consumers, the, the, the biggest in the state, and this is about the Australian manufacturing industry and its ability to actually sort of make things rather than just sort of shipping ore overseas, and they understand that um, they, one, they need to go electric, they need to electrify their processes, which Rio has talked about, and they need clean and cheaper power 
um, than what they've got now. So um, it's, yes, um, Charles. There's a lot. Look, there's a lot more to be said about this uh, in terms of the firming requirement because it's not. And I'm, if anyone's interested, I refer to an article I wrote about July last year, talking talking about the firming at aluminium uh, uh, smelters and yeah. the refineries. Yes, well, it's interesting. Well, look, look um, I had a talk to Rio Tinto um, today and they said, yes, so they want about four gigawatts. Um, well, they need about one gigawatt of um, sort of um, sort of firm supply. They've got two and a bit gigawatts now of wind and solar. I think they're going to pause. They're not going to do any more PPAs until they actually sort of work out what the firming options are. And that'll have a lot to do with how the capacity investment scheme is rolled out in Queensland and in other places. So I think they're going to be talking to the government about that or the governments about that and then sort of moving forward. Now, whether that firming comes in the forms of, you know, batteries or pumped hydro or gas peaking generators or, or whatever it might be. I, I fancy not the latter, but you never know. Um, so that's going to be interesting to see. Um, look, some other um, wind projects um, just off the top of my head now. The Wombo Wind Farm, which is in the Darling Downs region of Queensland, is doubling in size, got to 500 megawatts. Um, there's been some other announcements too, David. Help me out here. Uh, well, that's the main. That is the main other new announcement. We also had the head of Ashiona today, which is building the McIntyre wind farm, uh, which is a thousand megawatts. And as far as I can tell, that's going very well. Uh, and there's another stage for that, which I think will double it in size. But the, the, there is a lot going on, particularly in wind in ah. Queensland, right? Yes, right now, absolutely. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. I just got very excited because I remembered the other thing that was happening. That was Origin Energy's uh, purchase of um, wind and solar project in Barnaby Joyce's area. Um, well, I was going to get to that, but I wanted to finish, <laughs> sorry, sorry, to say that Queensland is actually where it's happening. And Ashiona was saying that Queensland is the place where you can get development done at the moment. That's always been the case. Queensland is the best place to do things. But the planning, everyone is, speaks with one voice in Queensland, whereas down here in New South Wales, as, we, as, you're, as you were just alluding to, people don't. But uh, to me, as interesting as it was to see Origin by the Ruby Hills wind project near Walker to add to a site for a solar farm that they have uh, bought uh, uh, closer to Armadale in the New England area of New South Wales, to me the most interesting thing to come out was that the submissions for the uh, environmental impact statement for the very contentious Winterbourne wind farm, it shouldn't be contentious, but it is, uh, have gone in and there were 498 submissions in favour and 438 against. So, you know, even when Barnaby, right in Barnaby's backyard, when he goes to every meeting and I'm told he walks into a meeting of 300 people and they all stand up and cheer, probably while he's falling down and uh, uh, nevertheless, there are still more people that want the bloody wind farm than don't want it, you know? Well, exactly, yes. Probably the tune for the fact that he's actually still upright, so I think it's sort of, you know, it's more of a congratulations thing. Um, and uh, before we get to our interview, the only other thing I want to mention, because I can't remember if I mentioned it last week, is that futures prices uh, have started falling in all uh, major regions of the NEM. I think this is because all the traders have got back from Christmas uh, and seen that actually the capacity investment scheme is, is going to be for real. Uh, maybe some of the transmission uh, was last that won't get built. Maybe that was last year's story and actually the transmission will get built. Uh, and, the, and they've all decided to take a little bit of a haircut on, on the price. And, um, uh, you know, this will go, if prices fall, it will accelerate the closure of coal stations in New South Wales. They're, they're very sensitive to price, more so than to volume. But perhaps we should get on to, the, um, to General Electric. Let's do that. Let's, um, we, we did uh, mention before that um, we did interview Stephen Swift, who's the um, head of commercial wind in GE, who just landed this rather major deal with um, Andrew Forrest Squadron Energy. So let's have a listen to that interview. The Energy Insiders podcast. Oh, my so pleasure. Thanks for recently, having me. Recently, GE has announced a very significant deal with Andrew Forrest's Squadron Energy. I think it's about 1.4 gigawatts in total, um, starting off with the Ungala uh, wind farm in New South Wales and closely followed by two other wind farms. Um, this is pretty significant for GE because I think by my calculations, it lifts the capacity under construction or in operation in Australia by around about 50%. 
Yeah, no, you know, we're uh, we're real proud of it. Obviously, you know, it's kind of the first project that is uh, closed with project financing in the last 12 months. <clears throat> you know, that's that's Yungala, and then, you know, we'll be shipping uh, 69 of our uh, six megawatt turbines, you know, into uh, into the project, and then. You know, quickly we we transitioned to working on uh, you know the partnership to deliver you know two more projects with Squadron and uh, you know really built kind of on a long term relationship you know going back to uh, the predecessor companies of uh, Squadron and you know you know I've personally been working with CWP for uh, you know probably since 2005 globally and with the Australia operation for the last decade plus so um, you know we're real proud to uh, to be part of what uh, what we hope is going to be a really uh, a positive build out. Um, and, uh, you know, really help with uh, Australia and its goals and, uh, you know, just proud to be part of it. Yeah, uh, you mentioned CWP, which, of course, is the company that was bought um, by Squadron Energy. Um, you mentioned before that there hadn't been much happening in the last 12 to 18 months, and I guess that's probably pretty true, particularly with the wind industry in Australia, not many new projects getting to um, closure or starting construction. Um, do you see now that the kind of um, the reins have been loosened and, um, and and things can get going because uh, there had been many issues in sort of planning approvals and things like that. I guess the new government has sort of you know sort of crystallised what the policy is now and 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 the targets. Uh, are you you hopeful that that can sort of march forward? Yeah, and if it's okay, maybe I'll take a take a step back, just maybe broader across the globe. You know what we're seeing is. Um, that you know, permitting cycles, um, development milestones, um, interconnect queues—you know—globally are it's just become you know probably uh, a longer and more complicated development cycle. So, you know, the ability for projects to stay on time—it's um, been challenged across the globe. And I think you know, when you come to Australia, really not much different. What you see is a lot of momentum in building up development pipelines. And, you know, really waiting for the point where, you know, projects, you know, kind of the yield through the pipeline just starts to, to take more of an uptick. So, you know, we're hopeful that, um, you know, as the market had to reset through COVID, through inflation, through, you know, a lot of challenges, again, globally, but really no different here in Australia. You know, we're hopeful that that momentum is, is starting to build and that the yield of all of the work that, you know, multiple developers do across all of Australia, you know, we, you know, we see large project pipelines, we see large aspirations, and you know, we hope this is the start of kind of an uptick in kind of a the the yield through the pipeline. Yeah, I mean, Australia's got reasonably ambitious targets: eighty-two percent renewables by twenty thirty, and it's probably only at about thirty-eight, thirty-nine percent now, forty percent maybe over some sort of um, thing. Um, seasons, um, that's going to require a lot of new wind turbines. And I guess there's been actually a question, I mean, there's lots of questions about can we get enough transmission built, can we get enough grid connections and commissioning, can we get the people to actually build them and install them, um, can we get enough turbines? Well, so um, as we think about, you know, planning GE, which, you know, we'll, we'll launch in uh, April 1 as GE Vernova, right? So we'll be spinning, spinning our part of the energy businesses out. You know, we think about that we've got to be getting ready for a 5x increase in the production of wind equipment for the onshore globally, right? So in order to achieve the goals around the world, you know, what we did over the last 20 years, we actually need to do it roughly a 5x pace to that going forward. So um, we've expanded capacity globally. We've got... Uh, you know, two factories in the United States. We've got a factory in Europe. Um, we've just, you know, spent tens of millions of dollars uh, expanding those facilities. And, you know, that's just kind of the first investment. So, you know, from our standpoint, we, we're trying to get ahead of it, but also pace ourselves to, you know, the realities of what the markets can turn. Um, and, you know, we kind of look forward to the challenge of trying to get to a 5x pace. And, um, you know, Again, I think for the foreseeable future, we're okay with with the factory expansions we've done and the uh, you know the <clears throat> supplier partnerships we have. So I, we think we're okay for the foreseeable future. But um, you know, it's going to be something that I think we're going to be in an investment cycle for for a decade as you know all of this um, project ambition flows through. Steve, I was just uh, looking at the Vestas Q4 results. I think around the world. GE has something like a 10% or a bit less market share, uh, but the China dominates that a lot. And you're about a f over 50% market share of uh, the turbine in the United States, which which is a great place. But you and I mean GE Vernova lost money in um, in 2023. 
What, what are you going to be telling uh, <laughs> in the people at, at Investor Day about the, the outlook for the business? Yeah, so, um, you know, great question. And, um, you know, again, maybe just um, <clears throat> for everybody, to, a little bit of the uh, history of what we're going through right now. So we made a decision about two years ago that we would take the General Electric company and, and split it into three independent companies. So, um, you know, last January, January 1, we spun out GE Healthcare independent company, independent board. Um, on or about April 1st, it's our intention to spin out GE Vernova, which are all the energy assets, and um, you know, create a company, again, independent board, independent company, with um, really the purpose of electrifying the world and decarbonizing the planet. So, um, so really, that's, you know, we're on that mission. As um, you know, we've been through a tough time, without a doubt. If you look at the wind industry, you know, when uh, I think it was 22, the overall wind industry lost you know, several billion dollars across all the OEMs. <clears throat> and really, you had a couple things that happened. You had a declining LCOE and folks bidding, you know, kind of a forward curve. So the expectation that prices would continue to go down. You had a rapid, um, tried, uh, try to catch that falling knife with technology. So you had a rapid, really, um, you know, new models, new variants, a lot of customization. You throw on top of that that we got into a massive global inflationary cycle. We got into a massive productivity decline as a result of COVID. And um, what you find is that, you know, the, the, the value equation that we were battling through needed to be reset. So, you know, for the first time, probably since, you know, maybe for the last 20 years, we had real consistent high levels of inflation. I think everybody's felt that across the globe. So, um, and we were on the wrong side of it with, with pricing. And we're probably on the wrong side of it with investment in new technology. So what we've done over the last, um, you know, 24 months is to really stabilize the business. And um, if you look at, uh, you know, our results in, uh, two, in the third quarter of 23, you know, the unsure wind business turned to small profit. Um, same thing in the fourth quarter. Um, you know, we'll obviously see what happens here in the first quarter and uh, we won't get ahead of, you know, investors and other things. But, um, you know, it's our expectation that the onshore wind business is on a positive trajectory. If you look at the Vernova portfolio, you know, we have a very healthy um, gas turbine service business. So long-term parts agreements, long-term service agreements. So that, uh, you know, really throw off about $2 billion of cash every year. We have a, um, a grid business, and if you think about, you mentioned earlier, the transmission build-out, you know, we have a, just a, a tremendous amount of demand. Um, we've been able to turn that business uh, profitable. And then on the electrification side, so this is our grid, you know, the, um, or excuse me, on the offshore wind business, you know, we're in a place where we have, you know, just going to take us longer to turn that backlog. And you would have seen from Larry Culp, our current, current chairman of GEA, you know, Projection that, you know, we still have to work through that backlog. It's very challenging. But, you know, it's our intention to run the plays that we ran for onshore wind, um, really an offshore, and, you know, stabilize that market, create a positive price to value, um, get our costs right, and also really bank on a workhorse mentality of products so that we're building fleets of consequence and making... So let, let, let's talk about a few of those little bits because... because we could talk for an hour about this and we haven't got an hour. Uh, uh, I'd just like to take it bit by bit. Maybe I could just start with the onshore wind business. Um, I saw in the last Vestas Q4 that their actual, I mean, the business these days divides between service and actual supply of the turbines. Let me just ask you a question about policy. Is it GE policy to sell a whole of field lifetime kind of guarantee or, or do you just want to sell the turbines and let someone else run the, run the wind farm? Yeah, so first, you know, there, we, we want to meet what our customer needs are. So cer certainly we're interested in selling the product and we're interested in having a long-term relationship with our customers, providing parts, upgrades, um, you know, just, you know, the lifetime repowering so in in a lot of cases especially in the u.s we'll actually repower turbines at 10 years so we're we're very interested in having that relationship with our customers um whether or not that needs to be underwritten with kind of an insurance policy on top of that i would say is the place that we're you know we're we're being a lot more selective so again we want to meet our customers needs but i think 
let's focus on what we're good at, which is parts, services, technology, return to service time, and maybe leave the insurance for, for others to the extent we can. So, so Vestas was at about 1 million euro a megawatt, and I'm guessing that standard size wind farms, maybe not in the USA where they still seem to be a bit smaller, but in Australia, we're all around the 6 megawatt uh, size. I mean, 1 million euro a, a megawatt is not that different from where it was a few years ago, despite all the talk about uh, cost inflation. Uh, what would you say about that number? Yeah, I would say, you know, that um, if you look around globally, you know, the just average selling prices are up significantly and, you know, without you know, without a good base of reference. But, I, you know, I would say pricing's up significantly, you know, maybe from the bottoms of 2019 until, you know, prices of 2022. So um, I would say, you know, we've we've we're back to those levels. I don't think that, um, you know, if you were looking in the 21 and 22 without having exact numbers in front of me, they were significantly under a thousand a kilowatt. And I, again, I think, you know, I, I know the percentages of, you know, prices increases that we have. And I think, you know, what Vestas reports. And I think if you looked at everybody's ASP, you see a significant increase over the last several years. I want to hand back to Giles, but I've got so many more questions. Let me just ask about the offshore wind business, which is another big debate everywhere. Uh, uh, BNEF said that, you know, they thought in 2023, and these numbers change all the time, you were looking at a US $114 per megawatt hour as the LCOE for offshore wind. And everyone in Australia thinks it would be higher, even adjusted for the currency, because we're a high cost country. Where do you see that number in a couple of years time? Yeah, so I'll... uh... You guys will have to help me with the conversion, but um, you know the the recent awards in New York and New Jersey. Well, and New Jersey is very public, right? That they awarded a PPA at something on the order of about 120 USD with a um, I want to say it's either a two and a half or three percent escalator per year, and then the second award was at I think somewhere in the range of 140 dollars with a 3% escalator. So when you look at those, you know, kind of levelized over 20 years, you start to see numbers that were in the 160 range. So that's the most recent factual award that I have, you know, available for for the US projects. And those were published as of about uh, two weeks ago. And, and when you look at your costs, are they the sort of numbers that you, that you would need, uh, uh, you know, from, I mean, turbines are only part of the cost, of course, but... Uh, you know, is that out of line with your thinking? Do you think it's too high or too low? Yeah, I think, you know, you have to look at it from two perspectives. One, you know, just what's the what's the cap that, you know, people are willing to pay. Um, so obviously, the you know, the market will determine that. And I think from a, from a standpoint, you know, we're certainly uh, think that there's an opportunity to make money at those levels and, you know, with, with the proper policy and infrastructure support. So, as you said, it's not just the turbine, but, you know, think about the infrastructure of jack-up vessels and, and service vessels and just the infrastructure to put grid connections in. Um, you know, there's a lot to it. So, you know, we're certainly excited about the opportunity of New Jersey and think that, um, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll save any discussion of, you know, GE's participation in that for another time. But, um, you know, we're certainly excited about those levels. If, I'll hand back to Giles, but I, if, if he doesn't ask, I want to ask about the grid business because I think that's very interesting from an investor perspective. Sounds good. <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let you ask about that, David. Um, I've got a couple of questions. One about um, levelised costs of um, onshore wind in, in Australia. Can you give us any guidance of where it is now or where, where you think it might get to? Um, you know, it's again, we try to stay out of the forward projection because really it's ultimately those bids are from our um, – you know, those are our customers, right? So I don't want to get ahead of, mm-hmm. of, of those folks and uh, <laughs> I'll let them set. I, what, what I'll say is that, you know, all the we're, we still have, um, I would say, some stabilization of, you know, the cost of a wind turbine. I think we still have some pressure on the labor side. I think we have still some inflationary things on transport. Um, so, you know, we're not without the pressure, but, you know, I'd say the hyperinflation of the last three or four years, you know, feels like for the time being, knock on wood, you know, we're at, there's a little bit more stability. Um, so I, I feel good about that. And I think, um, you know, the PPA prices, uh, you know, I'm certainly, as I look at the NEM and other things, I think they're, um, you know, when we were, I'll just say when we were bidding 50 AUD, um, we were, it was probably a bridge too far for everybody. 
So, um, you know, we're excited to see that the recognition that, you know, it needs to be a different price point for everybody to have a sustainable in industry. Is that, is that, where, where is it now, like a halfway, halfway point between 50 and 100? <laughs> I think last numbers I saw in the NEM, I don't know, I think we're in 80, but again, you guys are yeah. probably better judges of that than me. But it's interesting, though, because wind has obviously gone up, and, and look, solar went up as well, but solar seems to have come down. The price of solar modules, I think, is as low as, as, as they've ever been. Um, how does wind get into the NEM? Um, because it's needed. Solar is fantastic. It's great, but it kind of shines you know it, it produces at one time of the day wind is attractive because it can often produce um overnight and, and, and in fact the, the the best uh resources are those places where it does do that so how do you get a higher cost of energy into the NEM um are those the sort of things that trouble you or are you um is that for other people the developers and um, other things to to fret about no we, we we definitely think about it and you know when you think about kind of a 24 hours a day model you know, we actually think wind and solar play well together, you know, and you'll see, you know, what, what typically happens in markets, and we've seen it in three or four places, Germany, California, where you get high saturations of solar, is that the peak prices, you know, get depressed because, you know, obviously you have a zero variable cost fuel or product. So, you know, with the rapid addition of solar, you'll see the prices come down. And then all of a sudden the shoulders, which, you know, you know, as you said, kind of the evening hours where you still have high load but not much solar on the grid or morning hours, wind becomes more valuable. So that balance back and forth between the two, I said, I think they're, you know, more complementary. It's not that they don't compete at certain hours, but, you know, we, we think about it more in, a, in kind of a complementary way that, uh, you know, the, the 24 hour availability of wind and it has value at different at certain hours, but certainly at the peak, solar um, dominates. Yeah, I've got a few more questions, but I'm going, to, I'm going to do one more before I hand back to David, and then I've got a couple of others. Um, just tell us um, um, costs in the future. I mean, these turbines, um, they've gotten bigger in the last couple of years. I think um, the ones that you're rolling out for Ungala for, for Squadron are 6.1 megawatts. I think, what do they stand, 260 megawatts, uh, 260 megawatts, 260 meters to, to sort of um, the tip height. Um, how much bigger are these turbines going to be? I mean, is the is the increase in efficiency going to come from bigger turbines, um, which may you know create issues for landowners and and, and people in those areas, or there's or, or is there other ways of actually in increasing efficiency, or have we reached peak efficiency? Yeah, I would always say that there's opportunity to 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 go bigger, but I think what you have to do is you have to take the industry kind of there in concert. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you think about vessels, the ability to ship this equipment across the world, cranes, um, trailers to take from a port, you know, if, if, the tech, if the wind turbine, say, blade and tower technology gets ahead of the infrastructure to deliver it, you're likely to actually have value degradation or value loss. If, you know, so when you think about, you know, right now we'll ship the 60164, 164 meter rotor. But I think, you know, right now, I think we're in a period where you know, we're, we're going to stabilize on that platform. You know, our intention is to ship, you know, thousands of those machines around the world, certainly, you know, hundreds into, uh, into Australia. And I think it gives us an opportunity for everybody to get better at it. So when you think about, you know, the productivity of truckers and cranes and service technicians and port facilities and those things, I think, you know, stabilizing the technology and really going with this workhorse mentality, I think allows us to, to get more efficient. And then, you know, all in the background, we're thinking about what the next technology will be. I mean, you know, I certainly believe that, you know, machines will continue to go up in nameplate, and I think they'll go up in rotor. But, but again, we can't get ahead of the infrastructure that's available. So I just want to finish on that because you've touched on one of my favorite themes, which is that all this constant race to have a, a better technology means that you don't amortize the development and fixed costs. But, I mean, turbine manufacture is, is kind of a variable cost business, isn't it? Can you talk a little bit about the uh, cost structure just generally between fixed and variable and maybe where's the best place to make uh, blades in terms of local content and uh, versus cost to consumers? Sure. Well, I think, you know, maybe we'll, we'll do it a little bit component by component and jump in if I, if I don't answer the whole question. But, you know, if we use blades, you know, the capital part of blades is blade molds, right? And they're, you know, I'll just broad range of, you know, let's call it, uh, you know, eight to $12 million per blade mold. And, you know, so those costs need to be amortized over a period. And if we change technology too quickly, obviously you get stranded costs. So, 
Um, that's the capital part of it, and the buildings associated. Sorry, Steve. Yeah. I, I just one footnote. How many blades do you get out of one mold before you have to throw it away? Yeah, so what, you know, we we think typically, and again, we can refurbish them over time, but you certainly want to have at least a five-year run, and um, you know, think that you know, blade molds, depending on the exact rotor you get, I don't know, call it sixty to sixty to eighty blade sets out of a mold. Mm, thanks. Keep going. Yeah. So, you know, the capital part of the buildings associated with that and, you know, is big and, you know, again, why we think there's, you know, pausing at some of these points. And, and um, again, we're not that we're not innovating, but building a workhorse and several thousand turbines, we think there's value to that. When you look at towers, um, you know, same kind of thing. I mean, more that the, the towers don't have as much, you know, we don't build towers, we purchase them. But, you know, from the standpoint of capital expenditure, maybe a little less. You know, the, the plants are, you know, the, the sheet or the um, tower steel that comes off a line is similar and, you know, tower is not as much capital. And then, you know, when you think about the machine head, which really is kind of the drivetrain of the machine, you know, the, the capital expenditure is just how many times you want to retool your plant with torquing equipment, with cranes um, and just footprints. So there is a large amount of capital that you really want to be able to amortize over, you know, thousands of units in multiple years. So doesn't mean that you can't, you know, eventually, you know, you want to move on to the next thing. But if you're constantly changing those things, all of a sudden, again, you just got stranded investment that at some point you got to get a return on and you're probably not getting the um, LCO. Next you'll be telling me Henry Ford was onto something. He, well, you know, if uh, he, had, he, he had some good ideas, you know. <laughs> and okay, that's, uh, so I, I think myself that you can probably take unit costs down 10 or 20% just by, just by doing a better job with the current turbine designs. But what would I know? I'm a financial analyst. But let me move on from an investor perspective and ask about the transmission business, uh, which is kind of might be a new business, but it might provide ultimately a much more stable revenue stream if you don't make mistakes and you actually know what you're doing uh, when you quote for jobs, do you, uh, there must be a lot of a, quite a big growing market opportunity in transmission. Yep, absolutely. And, it, you know, kind of bifurcated in the AC side and the DC side. So you see, you know, in a lot of places, people are building high voltage DC. So these are large, you know, can be multiple billion dollar projects. So, you know, that's one side of the business. And then the other side is kind of, I will say the conventional AC, you know, so transformers, substations, um, you know, and just kind of general electrical equipment. And we see pretty high demand in both spaces. So, you know, part of the uh, return to profitability of that business is, again, some of the standardization, but also just, you know, overall market demand for the product. Yeah. And, and I mean, who do you compete with in that? I mean, you would only be a small player globally in that business, surely. Or, if I, uh, I mean, what's your market share of transmission build in, in the USA, for instance? Yeah, it's a, you know it's it's a tough one to call because they're you know without segmenting things. But I just you know our competition is you know the the ABBs, the Hitachi, um, you know certainly in the HVDC space. There's only a few folks, and you know we we do okay there. I think on the uh, you know on a I'll say on the transformer side, I'm not sure I could quote you a uh, exact market share, but I think you know certainly when it comes to like pad mounts for our for our um, which is the small transformer that goes with our wind turbines, we you know we do very well. Um, substations in the U.S. we do very well, um, but I don't have an exact market share for you. No, no. And would you, I mean, like this big transmission build in Australia uh, going to happen, uh, is that something that uh, would be of interest to GE? Oh, it absolutely would. I think what, you know, what we have to look at is, you know, um, obviously, you know, the, the grid in Australia is one of the most complicated in the world. So, you know, whether or not our products have a good fit is, you know, a study we continue to go through. Um, you know, when I say, you know, our ability to connect wind turbines with AMO and, you know, the studies that are required, we feel like we're, you know, one of the best. And the question is, can we bring that same um, skill set, you know, to the broader technology? And, uh, you know, we continue to look at it. So, um, you know, we're, we're optimistic, but we also want to make sure that we have a good technical fit with our product versus kind of the needs of the grid here. I saw Investus's fourth quarter that they, their orders had, um, you know, their growth in orders, which was about seven gigawatts for that quarter uh, globally, was largely in the US and in Australia. And of course, you're getting some orders in Australia. So it's despite the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, Australia still seems to be showing up, at least for the moment. I think my question is, if, if, if you knew that... Um, if, if you had a, a, like a, a framework agreement such as the one that uh, 
uh, uh, squadron has signed where where there was basically an arrangement to take you know a uh, thousand megawatts a year or something like that whatever many turbines that is do you think that if that was in place for five years you get a lower cost from the consumer's point of view than if if it's just a series of one-off orders that, that come every now and then I just say generally that that that's the theory of the case, right? Is that you know by you know working together and having some standardization, optimizing, really focused on not just you know kind of the procurement of components, but you know how do we work together? How do we you know build facilities that can be reused? How do we think about this on a broader scale? Um, that's certainly what uh, our intention is with you know the partnership with Squadron. Again, it, you know. The, obviously, we'll still continue to deal with cost pressures and inflationary pressures, but you know, kind of like for like, it's certainly our expectation that two companies as skilled as you know GE and Squadron and you know constructing partners across of Australia, we think we can deliver a better outcome in a partnership. Yeah, it's kind of like car manufacturers. I'll hand back to to uh, to Giles. Uh, I just wanted to ask uh, about from your conversations how do you think investors and i guess we us investors in the first instance uh, are, are going to be looking at the spin-off are they, do they seem like they're interested to you uh despite the lack of current profitability or or you know what what's what's going to be the selling appeal just the, the growth in sales over time yeah so you know obviously a tough time to you know forecast exactly how this play out i'll just say that um if you look at GE stock price over the last 12 months, you know we've had a, you know, a tremendous run up, you know, from the 60s, and I think uh, it closed over 140 uh, last night. So, um, you know, we feel good that I think they they look at what GE's doing and they value it. Now, how they allocate what they see in aerospace versus what they see in Vernova, you know, is uh, you know is a story yet to be written. But you know, I think. Um, Overall, I think the investment community kind of values, you know, the turnaround of the company. They they value what we do with lean and productivity and, you know, value that, uh, you know, we're going to be more focused, three independent business going forward. Yeah. And then handing back to Giles, I'll just observe, uh, I bet the Orsted uh, shareholders are hoping they can have a similar run. Back to you, Giles. <laughs> I just want to ask about the uh, Steve the uh, the turbines that you'll be supplying for Ungala and the and the other projects. Will they be made um, entirely overseas? Will there be any local component? Yeah, so uh, you know, obviously, all the you know the um, construction servicing will be locally. You know, obviously, you know parts and services. I would expect though that um, as we sit here today, that uh, you know towers will be in, imported. Um, you know, there's no blade manufacturing capability in Australia, and then uh, you know machine heads will come from you know one of our our facilities um, either in Europe or in the U.S. So that that's kind of the plan as we sit today. Okay, and a, a, any prospect that towers could be built in Australia? I think there's one thing that Australians could possibly do. Yeah, I think you know we've we've had these discussions, and I think what what really what you you know the the investment you know just requires you know five to ten years of a solid commitment. It requires the, a skilled labor force, which you have, um, but, you know, obviously there's a, a cost of labor difference. So, you know, as we sit here today, I would say we don't think local manufacturing for, of the major components is really accretive to trying to have a competitive power price. Mm -hmm. What we do see, though, is, you know, how do we do better to localize services, you know, whether it's, um, you know, you know, technicians, warehousing, repair facilities as the as the uh, installed base continues to go, I think that's really where the opportunity is. Okay, and you could upskill the workforce. Uh, sorry, exactly, exactly. And you know, we, we over the last couple of days actually spent a lot of time talking about how do we uh, make sure that um, underserved communities are, are part of the growth of wind, and you know, what are we doing to to think about that and and start to integrate them in our workforce? So certainly a, a place we're focused as well. Yeah. What about repowering and recycling? Because um, repowering is interesting because they tend to be smaller turbines which might need to be upgraded at some stage. Um, can you tell us about some of the opportunities there and also the potential for recycling? Because that's become like a bit more of a, a live issue um, for people um, observing the uh, the growth of the industry. Yeah. So I'll um, I'll talk about repower in, in kind of the highest level of you know think about a repowering being I'm going to reuse some of the infrastructure you know towers. Um, in particular, and really, that's so far has really only turned into a U.S. market. So um, we've repowered, you know, over four thousand units in the U.S. and a lot of it, um, you know, GE equipment, but also some competitor machines. Internationally, we'd say that repowering is really a kind of a teardown and a and a, a new build. 
So, you know, kind of a different view if you look, you know, went to Germany, when they talk about repowering, it's really putting up new turbines, you know, with yeah. maybe maximizing a good resource that maybe had uh, older technology. So, um, and as far as, you know, recycling, you know, we've got a couple things going on. We just launched our um, prototype of our first uh, recycled blade with LM, our in-house blade supplier. Um, and also with the repowering that we're doing in the United States, we've got, uh, you know, services that we work with our customers to actually um go ahead and recycle every blade. So, you know, again, we want to be good stewards. And, you know, obviously the blades are one of them more complicated. Um, you know, recycling steel has been going on for a long time. And, you know, yeah. but I think, you know... It's, it, yeah. it's, it's not a great look when you've got sort of blades sort of being sort of, you know, put into landfill and things like that. To it's, uh, totally yeah. agree. It's uh, yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, one final question from me. You mentioned about the um, the fact that sort of connecting in Australia is really complicated. I mean, how much more complicated is it in Australia than overseas, and, and how much of that is a uh, is a business problem for you guys? Yeah, I would say it's you know that this is um, you know connecting to grids with you know long strings is um, you know will always be complicated, and making sure that you know we have we provide grid support. So. You know, we probably have more per grid engineers per turbine in Australia than anywhere in the country. It doesn't mean we don't have problems in other places, but, you know, we think we've we've done a good job of building a, a skill set here that, um, you know, we work very well with AMO. We work very well with uh, with our customers to go get grid applications in, and um, we think it's one of the things that differentiates us going forward. And, you know, it's the nature. It's not, you know, it's not a... Um, it's just the nature of where the load is versus where the generation is. So it's not, um, you know, nobody's done anything wrong. It's just a, it's a complication that requires, you know, high tech support. And, um, you know, we're, uh, you know, we feel like, uh, you know, we're always excited to brag that, you know, one third of the world's power comes off of GE equipment. So we think as we bring that thinking to, you know, all kinds of countries, including Australia, that, you know, it helps to differentiate what we provide. Yeah, um, Steve, um, uh, David, um, we've just got this sort of um, a signal here to sort of wind up the interview. So, David, if you've got um, something very quickly to add or to ask, um... I could uh, I could ask more questions, but uh, I'd just like to say thanks to Steve for being very generous with uh, sharing his great knowledge of what's going on. Well, there you go, and I'd like to add to that. Thanks, um, thanks very much, um, Steve Swift from GE. Hey, real pleasure. Thanks for the time. Enjoyed it. And that was Steve Swift from GE Venova. Um, one thing that caught my attention towards the end there, David, was his sort of um, PPA prices sort of forecast. I didn't want to get sort of too tied down because I didn't want to reveal any secrets and PPA is very much kept under the carpet. But generally, I think it's accepted now that wind is around about $90 a megawatt hour if you include all the LGCs and things like that. And solar's a lot cheaper than that. Um, how's that going to work? Well, I, I'm not sure that wind is 90. That's the first point, uh, Giles. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but uh, necessarily, but we, we, we shall see. The thing that caught my eye, just to change this, and I think the fact is that wind has more value than solar, uh, and, sim and it's well, value no, that matters. Go on. Yeah, no, no. Well, well, absolutely, yes. And I, I would have thought that wind is probably close to about 75 or 80. But, um, I mean, I guess you're a vendor. You want to sort of talk up the prices. What, what do you think they are? Because you probably get some sort of insight into what's going on around the place. No, it's not that hard. I, I, it depends on the PPA and so on. Um, but you can. it's not very hard, really, to build a model. You just plug in a capital cost and an operating cost. It'll take you about 15 minutes and a cost of capital. But I think the most interesting thing to come out of that... Uh, uh, that discussion was the offshore wind PPA prices in the United States, which are absolute facts. Now, it's true that prices for everything go up and down. People shouldn't, as you, <laughs> price is self-correcting. I know I've said that a lot of times, but it's really true. If you look at the oil price, when, when, uh, uh, when oil price goes up, drilling costs go up because everyone wants to drill a well. And then when the oil price goes down, drilling costs go down. Uh, so the industry sort of stays and, uh, and makes a constant profit, uh, not quite. But and same in wind. And what we've seen is that costs in offshore wind went up like a rocket. And so the PPA prices in the United States have gone up. Did he just say US one hundred and fifty dollars a megawatt hour? Was that the number you heard? Um, it was a week ago now. So yes, but that's what people that's what people are talking about. And um, and floating wind even more expensive. So those well, floating prices... wind doesn't even exist. 
Um, well, it does in some places, but um, um, in, yeah, it does in Europe, and I think there's been a couple put in in, in Asia, but um, but much higher prices. So um, yes, they've all got to come down, and that's particularly relevant for New South Wales, for instance. I mean, New South Wales will have to be at least a decade away. You would have thought from any sort of floating wind projects. Um, at least at the current prices. But um, look, David, before we wrap up, I just wanted to sort of come back to um, what we started off the conversation with um, on Victoria and transmission and things like that. There's been a few reports coming out. I mean, there's one by um, uh, Gabrielle Cooper, Cooper from um, uh, this week, and there's been um, one by uh, Tristan Edis and uh, Rick Rosali from Green Energy Markets, just sort of talking about sort of the massive growth of rooftop solar, um, the potential for battery storage, particularly at a household level. Um, and there just seems to be sort of more of these reports now. I mean, do you think we sort of need to talk a bit more seriously about sort of, you know, sort of maximising the distributed energy resources? Um, well, so I, 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 um, I'm on a panel uh, uh, as, the, as the very, you know, sort of the um, make up the numbers guy uh, with Daniel Westerman and some others at the Smart Energy Conference. And, and the topic for our panel is, is the uh, grid integration. Uh, and, you know, the missing element in it all is how to integrate still properly the rooftop se sector, which is price incentive with, with the rest. You can't run the whole grid off rooftop solar, but, uh, but it can contribute an awful lot. And certainly, as I've said about every week nearly on this podcast, the fact that uh, with the household batteries are not really supported, although there is a scheme now in Queensland for some, but it's only for some, it's not a more general sort of scheme, is, is I think, uh, the missing link in the, one of the missing links in the policy puzzle. I'm talking a lot, Giles, as usual, but what you will find when you look at wind, you will get by far the firmest wind portfolio if you build something in North Queensland and something in Tasmania, right? Because the weather is so different in both states that uh, it's almost it's much more likely that when it's blowing in Queensland, it won't be blowing in Tasmania and vice versa. So you get the effect of a constant, a much more constant output, but that takes a lot of transmission. And the competing story is to build everything as close as possible to demand. And I still think as a, as, as a planning system and as a country, we haven't quite got to a landing on all of that yet. Fair enough. Well, I do look forward to that conversation at the Smart Energy Council um, in a couple of weeks. David, um, fantastic to have you on board uh, once again. Thank you very much to Steve Swift from GE for talking to us um, for this episode. Um, do have a listen to some um, other podcasts um, on the subject of distributed energy resources. Um, Anne Delaney's got a terrific interview with uh, Gabriel Cooper. Um, about her report um, so that's worth listening to thanks of course to our sponsors Evergen and Pylon and um, we'll be talking to you in a week's time with another episode of the Energy Insiders podcast bye for now Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.